following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the third and final message in our series called Jesus History. Um, I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope some of you were challenged to go purchase the book I talked about last week, and I'm going to pull more material from that source and this kind of groundbreaking new way of looking at the New Testament that was introduced by Richard Borkham. And I wanted to, I'm not going to do kind of fish in a barrel today. I'm not going to use some arguments that you can find in just about any kind of apologetic book, but I'm going to present to you ideas that have a more recent currency that people really haven't thought about before. But I want to start off with a text that you'll be familiar with because I mentioned it last week in terms of the eyewitnesses, and it comes to us from Second Peter, Peter's second letter, in which he said, "'For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty.'" eyewitnesses of his majesty. It wasn't something I made up. It wasn't something I heard from somebody else. Peter's saying, I rested my eyes upon this historical person called Jesus Christ. I laid my eyes upon him. I knew him. I ate with him. I drank with him. I walked down dusty roads with him. And sometimes he said nice things to me, and sometimes he called me Satan. You think, you think about these stories about Peter and the things that Jesus had said to him. I've no doubt that the other disciples ribbed him about that on, on occasions. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, of course I remember it, but we don't need to keep discussing it. There's a very real set of stories found in the New Testament. Last week, we laid the groundwork for answering this question. Are the Gospels based on eyewitness accounts? The New Testament writers made this claim as we saw. We found that many of those were still alive when the Gospels were written. And finally, although you may not be able to remember what you had for breakfast a month ago, cognitive science has told us, and my young teenage son, demonstrated that unusual, consequential, and emotional events can be remembered faithfully for decades after the event, especially if it involves the constant retelling of those stories in the intervening period. Today, we're going to explore explore this one step further by taking a case study, and we're going to look at one particular of these biographies found in the New Testament known as the Gospels, and it is going to be the Gospel of... Mark. Now, Mark's gospel, we find on our timeline here, we looked at Jesus' life running from 6 BC to about 30 AD. We have Matthew, Luke, and John, but the earliest of the gospels is Mark's gospel, put down here between 50 to 60 AD. Now, these dates are conservative. We could push them earlier, and I believe there are good reasons for pushing them earlier, but alas, time does not permit me to do that today. But if you want to talk about it afterwards, I'm only too happy to. But Mark's gospel, roughly around this 50 to 60 AD period. And the question we want to consider is recognizing that Mark is the earliest of the gospels, and also the fact that it was heavily utilized by Matthew and Luke. 
If you read Matthew and Luke, you discover that there is lots of stuff that has been utilized from Mark's gospel. So it has this primary place in the set of gospels. We have all these biographies about Jesus' life. We want to know who was this person, Mark, and who were the eyewitnesses he used for this gospel. And we see here on our timeline, he fits right into this fairly early period, I would suggest. By the way, I didn't mention this a couple of weeks ago, but when we were talking about sources being close to the, eight, the person they're talking about, and I said to you that these sources of the Gospels are very close, and then we have the creeds and we have the speeches. If you think about someone like Alexander the Great, the earliest kind of literary sources for Alexander the Great are a couple of centuries afterwards, but no one's in any doubt in their mind that Alexander the Great existed as a person in history. So these sources we have, these primary documents in the New Testament, are very early. And as I said, many historians would love to have this wealth of information for the people that they study in the classical world. They just don't have it. The first thing I want to address is, what evidence do we have is that this author, this person Mark, is from the first century and he comes from the right region. In other words, we want to place Mark regionally and chronologically in time at this place because it's not really possible to write the gospel based on eyewitness accounts if you weren't in the right place to interview the right people at the right time. This seems pretty reasonable to me. Now, there is one way we can do this that you would never have probably considered. There is a strong sign that this gospel was written by a first century Jew in the region of Palestine, based on eyewitness counts, is because of the names that appear in Mark's gospel. What do you mean names, Adam? Not the place names, but the names of the individual people that pepper the story of Mark's gospel are significant. Recently, I wrote a book um, on New Zealand airmen in the First World War. And in this book, I discovered a whole lot of names that are quite foreign to my ears, unless it's an old, from an older person. Because the people I was writing about had been born in the Victorian era. They came from the 19th century coming through to the early part of the 20th century. So their names, their first names, their Christian names, were very different to the names that we give children today. I had many Arthurs. You know, the only Arthur I really know is Sandra's dad, is Arthur. I have not come across any kids recently who have been called Arthur. Albert is not necessarily a name many people are using for their children today. Some people are, but I would suggest it's less common. Herbert is less common today for children being born in the 21st century. So I had Alberts, Arthurs, and Herberts all coming through in these stories about these airmen from the First World War. What does this tell me? It tells me that you can place, this, place a date and even the kind of culture or society that somebody comes from by the, just by dint of their very first name. You know, people from Latin America might have a name like Manuel or Carlos or some other name or Jose, and that name gives you an indication of a locality, a region, and it's true for time and for location. When I was born in the best year of the 20th century, which was 1964, congratulations if you are fortunate enough to be born in that same year, the names that people were given were quite different to the names that appear in the paper every single year telling us what was the kind of 
the, the hit parade of first names for boys and girls in the 21st century. When I was born, these were the names, the top five names for boys. Andrew, Mark, Paul, Peter, Michael, and at the top of the pile, David. That's a kind of hit parade of names from 1964 for boys. The hit parade for girls are from the 1964, I'm sure some of you will recognize this because they will be your names, Joanne, Sharon, Julie, Sandra, what a lovely name, and then at the top, Karen. Can you see how those names place us in a certain context and time? The names for boys in 2016 were, and some of you will know these well because you have named your own children after these, Oliver, Jack, William, Mason, James, and Hunter. For girls, Olivia, Charlotte, Isla, Harper, Ella, Amelia. A fine set of names, aren't they? And you'll notice this trend with the boys' names of taking surnames and making them first names. This kind of Harper as a surname who suddenly becomes a first name. I have two great uh, nephews, fine young men, and they are called Tate, traditionally a surname, and Mackenzie, traditionally a surname, but works really well as a first name. But forever and a day, because of those names they've been given, they'll be nicely placed in a geographical place and time. And this is true of the New Testament, but nobody had ever looked at this before until the last 15 years when they looked at the names that were used in the first century. And this is because a massive database was produced in the year 2002 in which they gathered together all the recorded Jewish names from Palestine in our period in question. An incredible resource. These names were derived from literary text and from archaeology, principally the works of Josephus, the New Testament documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then from archaeology, a really interesting and fascinating source, which are ossuary boxes or bone boxes. You may be unaware of this, but when Jesus was placed in the tomb, what would initially happen for a person in the Jewish world in the Second Temple period is this. The body would be put in the tomb. It would be left there for a year, and then the family would come back to the tomb, and they would gather up what was left, which was the bones, and they would lay them inside a burial box or an ossuary, and you can see a collection of them here. In fact, it is a distinctive burial practice of Second Temple Judaism and the first century Judaism, and stopped after the destruction of the temple. So these are nicely fitting in in our exact period. Now, some of these burial boxes, and bear in mind that the burial boxes could contain a number of members of the family. Um, you would collect them up and you'd put them in the same box. The boxes could be expensive, and of course, it is a fairly compact way of storing, because it's a different cultural practice to our own, but in, in, the, in the cultural practice of the time, it makes, perfect, it makes perfect sense. Now, this is a burial box, and it's hard for you to see, but on the right-hand side of this burial box, there, you might be able to see some etchings on the side. It's an inscription, and these inscriptions contain the names of people who are in the boxes. Now, not all burial boxes have them, but a good number do. 
And so what this, these scholars discovered by looking at Josephus, New Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls, and these burial boxes is 3,000 names, incredibly, 3,000 names, Jewish names, in Palestine in the first century. Now, having said that there's 3,000 of them, don't get too carried away, because just like today, some names are far more popular than others. In fact, the most popular names in the first century Palestine and occupied some 15% of all boys were Simon and Joseph. And for females, 28% of the females were either called Mary or Salome. Mary or Salome, 28%. So some names were incredibly popular and elevated above others in the minds of the people who were having children in this period. Now, let's look at a chart. This is all going to, you're going to find out why this is all relevant in a second. Let's look at a chart of these names. Now, from our list of this database, these are the top six names from the period. Simon, Joseph, Eliezer, Judah, Johanan, and Joshua. Now, if the New Testament Gospels, in particular Mark's Gospel, was written in Palestine, geographical location, in the first century, uh, chronologically correct in the timeline and the place to hear from the eyewitnesses, guess what we should discover? We should discover that the names in Mark's gospel and the names in all the other gospels and the book of Acts, if we combine them all together, there will be some similarity. Would that not be the case, ladies and gentlemen? Of course it would be the case. And this is what we discover when you take all the names from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the book of Acts where all these names appear, and then you list them. This is what you come up with. Wow, and that's what people said when they looked at it. They went, oh my goodness. The idea that somehow these gospels are written in a different location or at a different time outside of the first century, well away from where eyewitnesses could have recounted what they'd seen, is complete nonsense. Why? And do you think the writers got together and said, oh, we must jig this together so it's going to fit in, so in 2002 when they do a database. No, 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 people just wrote the biographies, and this is how it turned out. It happens to correspond exactly. And you're saying, Adam, well, maybe that was true for Jews everywhere. It was not. In fact, there were plenty of Jews that did not live inside Palestine at that time. They are what we call the Jews of the diaspora. Jews spread across the Middle East from Persia all the way through to Egypt. You know, Egypt's very close to Palestine. And what they have done is they've collected the Jewish names that were used in Egypt and created their own hit list of names for that period. And this is what they came up with. A very different list. A very different list. Why? Different geographical location and different favorite names. So the New Testament names that he used correspond exactly with what you would expect from somebody who was there able to be an eyewitness. Another feature of the Gospels that indicates that the person that was interviewing these people was living there is what we call protective anonymity. Protective anonymity. Now, protective anonymity indicates that Mark's gospel was fairly early and was written in this region. And I'm going to tell you why this is. You will note when you look at a comparison between Mark's gospel and John's gospel, one written early, one written much later, that Mark misses out numbers of names 
in places that John is quite happy to mention. I'm going to give you just two, the two main examples of this and tell you why they need protective anonymity. For example, the woman who anoints Jesus in Mark's gospel, the woman who anoints Jesus in Mark's gospel, she is not named, but in John's gospel, she is named as Martha, the sister, sister of Mary. Why is it? Because Mark clearly knows who this person is. Why is it that he decides not to expressly say who this woman is? It's because... The potential for a threat on her life and her family's life is great. Why? Because anointing someone in this manner, as though they are the Messiah, is in a way a seditious and provocative act to Jewish and to Roman rulers in the first century at that time. Why? Because Jesus is alive and he is a potential threat in this sense. So Mark decides to protect Martha, Mary, and their family by keeping it that piece of information out of the story. John, writing towards the end of the first century, because Martha has already died, and he is quite at liberty to say who that person was. What does that tell me? It tells me that this gospel was written in this location because of, because, and because we know that because of the threat involved and at a fairly early date. Another example of protective anonymity in the gospels is the individual in Mark's gospel who cut off the high priest servant's ear. He doesn't even mention the name of the high priest or the servant or the person who cut off the ear. But we find it where? In John's gospel. Why? Because the situation has radically changed. And if you think about how dangerous it was to write a gospel in which you name the person who cut off the ear would have been in the 40s, the 50s, or the 60s. But when you get to the 90s, towards the end of the first century, it makes a very big difference. Let's look at this in here, this comparison. From Mark's gospel, the 14th chapter, Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then, and now but we go to John, John expressly says who it is. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, Caiaphas, the high priest. Now he's happy to mention also the priestly family. Why? Because at this, by this time, this priestly family had nowhere near the prominence it had in the early part of this period. Why is it then, you might ask yourself, that Mark feels free to mention Pontius Pilate, which would have been quite a dangerous thing to mention in his gospel? Well, we know that Pontius Pilate died in 39. That also helps us date Mark's gospel into the 40s, that he feels freely able to mention Pontius Pilate. He doesn't need that anonymity. Why? Because the threat of Pontius Pilate or any repercussions for talking about it is no longer there. This idea of protective anonymity helps us place it in time. This brings me to my next question. Now that we've got this region and we've got our time set, this Mark's gospel fits into this with the names and with the anonymity principle. What evidence is it that it was written by a person called Mark? And this seems pretty obvious to you and I, because when you open your New Testament up, it says the Gospel of Mark. 
But in fact, there is no signature at the end of it. There's nothing in the text where Mark says, I, John Mark, hereby write this gospel. That doesn't appear in there, but it's a name that has been attached to the gospel from a very early date and has stuck to it consistently down through the centuries. One of the earliest references we have to Mark's gospel being written by a person called Mark comes to us from the late first century and from the early part of the second century. And it comes to us via a man called Papias, an early church father, whose writings survive today as extracts in other men's books, like Eusebius's church history has extracts from Papias in there. But Papias was writing very early. Look at the dates for his life, 50 to 130 AD. Because of when he wrote, he had direct access to some of the longer living followers of Jesus. This is a point he, in fact, makes. Most of his writings are lost to us today, but excerpts appear in these later writers. And one of the men he had direct access to was John, was John the Apostle. And what John told him was this. He said that, John said that Mark wrote this gospel. Now, this is significant because we have an apostolic connection between the authorship of Mark's gospel here. In other words, this is not some story from somebody else. John has lived a long time. He's been in the church community. He was there with Jesus. He knows who wrote it. And his response to Papias was, Mark wrote it. So this is our earliest kind of reference, and I think a very strong source. An important church leader and writer tells us, that's John the Apostle, that it was Mark. The other reason why I'm convinced that Mark actually wrote this gospel is because he is so minor and obscure. It comes from the principle of obscurity. You see, if we wanted to give more credibility to this book, and it didn't have a name to it or somebody attached to it as an author, we would pick someone more prominent, somebody that would carry more gravitas. In fact, the only reason you ever think about Mark is because his name is attached to the gospel because he is such an obscure character. And if you're a Christian, perhaps it's because you're aware of the conflict between Barnabas and Paul over John Mark. But that is it. Outside of this, we don't have very much on him. But it's this sort of obscurity that lends weight to the claims of John. In other words, if we were going to make up a person, we would not have chosen someone as obscure as Mark. We would have chosen Peter, Thomas. We might have picked James. Mark's not even a disciple. Um, he, was, um, he was not even a disciple. He's not an apostle. We have no reason even to believe that he met Jesus. But all of this, in fact, adds weight to the belief that Mark is the author. No one would have ascribed a gospel to someone as obscure as Mark unless it was Mark who had written it. There is no other rational explanation for this in my mind. Well, having sorted all of that out, our region, our location, and that Mark wrote this, how do we know he used eyewitnesses? That's the really big question. How do we know he used eyewitnesses? So we have excellent reasons to believe that the author of the earliest gospel was a first century Jew living in Palestine, and that he was John Mark who appears in the book of Acts. But who, was, who were the eyewitnesses? 
Well, before I get into who the main eyewitness was in Mark's gospel, it's one, just one individual. It is clear that he used other eyewitness accounts. If you think about the crucifixion and the resurrection stories, they are invariably associated with a handful of names as witnesses. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and another Mary. In fact, it seems highly likely that those stories associated with the, perhaps you should say, the most important events in Jesus' life are associated with eyewitness testimony from women. Those are the names that are the most prominent. And I can tell you as a historian who writes history, when I have someone who is a prominent source for what I'm writing, their name appears a lot. Why? Because I want to give due acknowledgement to where I got my information from. It would be intellectually wrong of me not to do that. It should be associated with the person I got it from. What could we say? Well, I think we can say that those stories prominently from women. There's another factor that occurs in the New Testament, and that is that some names people are mentioned and some aren't. Think about, even in Luke's gospel, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is met by two disciples. Why is it that only one person gets their name mentioned and another person doesn't? Have you ever pondered that? Have you ever pondered in Mark's gospel how even in the very first chapter, I mean, I was flicking through it last night, just reading a chapter or two, and, and, and I just noticed all the healing stories that were appear really early on in Mark's gospel. Do you know Mark's gospel, despite hundreds of people being healed, only two people have a name attached to their healing? Jarius' daughter, Jarius, and Bartimaeus. Why is that? Why do they get their names in the book and everyone else just, I got healed? Why is that? Why does it occur in that manner? Some people are mentioned and other people are not. Why are some minor individuals named? Think about also in Mark's gospel of Simon the Cyrene, a really small incidental thing about a man who helps Jesus with the cross. But do you know what other names we get? While a vast bulk of people are unnamed in the Gospels, we get to know the names of his sons. Rufus, who was the other one? Does anyone know? Alexander, isn't it? Rufus and Alexander. Why do their names get in there? Bartimaeus or Jarius? Here's the reason why. The only reason why that historians have been able to come up with to explain why these people get their names included in the story and others don't is this. Is that those people ended up becoming members of the Christian community after Jesus' resurrection and the establishment of the church and that they themselves told those stories on many occasions and probably were in high demands in, in churches to talk about their experiences. In other words, when your name appears, there's a possibility it's because you were the eyewitness source for the story that appears in the gospel. It's the only thing that makes sense, despite historians looking at it for hundreds of years, it's the only explanation that makes sense. But that that's getting away from who the main source is for this gospel. It's Peter. That's why some people call the gospel of Mark the gospel of Peter. How do we know this? First piece of evidence for all of this comes from our man Papias again, who got from John Mark, who got from, I should say, from John the Apostle. We've got too many Johns in here, haven't we, ladies and gentlemen? And up in here, I put Peter in our timeline here. He is our main source, or the main source for Mark's gospel, and I'm going to give you the reasons why that is the case. 
This is a quote from Papias in which he says the elder John used to say, Mark in his capacity as Peter's interpreter wrote down accurately as many things as Peter recalled from memory. Mark made it his one concern not to omit anything he heard or falsify anything. So our first reason for believing that this gospel of Mark was based on eyewitness testimony from Peter is from an apostolic source. Surely if anyone knew where Mark got his material from, it was a a disciple of Jesus who lived alongside Peter during Jesus' ministry and, as I say, a prominent personality in the early church. This very early quote very specifically states, categorically, Mark wrote his gospel based on what Peter remembered. The next thing I would say about this is simply this, that there is a strong association between Mark and Peter in the New Testament, if you look hard enough. Most of us know about Paul and Barnabas and this dispute that these two men had over Mark, Peter, uh, um, our man in here, John Mark. But in fact, there's a very long association with Peter. The very first appearance of Mark in the book of Acts and in the New Testament documents is not associated with Barnabas, it's not associated with Paul, it's associated with Peter. It's when Peter escapes from jail and he makes his way to a Christian home. And in that home, who should be there? Let's look at our text. He, Peter, went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. In addition to this, we have, of course, um, Mark traveling with Peter. He spent a good time with him, and it's believed he spent a lot of time with him after 55 AD in Rome. And the indication of the close relationship between these two men is found in the closing comments of his first letter in which he closes with greetings from a handful of individuals but ends with the most prominent person he wants to put in the story who he affectionately calls Mark my son. That's how close these two guys were, Peter and Mark. So close that he said, he is like my son. So the first thing we have is an apostolic connection. Then we have this link that shows that these two men spent plenty of time together, more than enough for Peter to relay the stories of what had happened in his lifetime with Jesus to Mark and for Mark to write it down. Then we have an interesting feature that has only really been come to light in the last decade or so. And it is simply this, that scholars have realized that Mark's gospel follows a literary convention that highlights Peter's role using an ancient biographer's convention, which is called an inclusio. An inclusio. Let's put that up here. An inclusio. What is an inclusio? An inclusio is all included. Think about this for a second. The inclusio is an ancient biographer's technique for showing where you got most of your material from. And this is how it works. If you have a primary source, a major source of what you're about to say, you mention that person at the beginning of the book, and you mention that person at the end of the book. In other words, that person bookmarks, or what we might we call that when you put those uh, books on a bookcase, Bookends, thank you, Sandra. You see, you have bookend, you've got a bookend at one end, you've got a bookend at the other, and in between the bookends is where a lot of the material came from. And you do that. Now, what do we find in Mark's gospel? How does he, who's the first disciple that gets mentioned in Mark's gospel? 
As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon Peter, who's the last person, the last disciple that gets mentioned in John's gospel. But go tell his disciples and Peter that is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So in this inclusio, we now know that Mark is saying, guess who was the major source of the material? It's Peter. And how am I telling you this? By following this literary convention. But this appears elsewhere in other Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, I've already told you this, that Luke's Gospel is heavily dependent on material from Mark. Luke, being a good historian, guess what he does? He includes, includes an inclusio within his Gospel by mentioning who first? Peter, ending with Peter. What's he saying? I am indebted for much of the material of my gospel to this apostle called Peter. Think about John's gospel. Now, John's gospel is not based on interviewing somebody else except interviewing himself because he's the eyewitness. So what's his inclusio? Who gets mentioned first in John's gospel? Who of the disciples gets mentioned last, albeit anonymously? John. What's he saying to his audience? I am the principal source of this material in here. But he has an inclusio with inside an inclusio. And you say, Adam, that sounds fairly complicated. It's simpler than you think. The next disciple that's mentioned after him and the second to the last disciple is a nod to who? Peter. This indebtedness to Peter and to Mark's gospel, which of course sheds a whole different light on lots of things, doesn't it? When you're reading Mark's gospel, and you start to realize, oh my goodness, I'm not really hearing what Mark has to say. I'm reading what Peter had to say. It's this inclusio. In the ancient world, people recognized these conventions and Mark's gospel that it was dependent on the eyewitness account of Peter. And this brings me, as we wind to an end here, to my last point. How do we think, why do we think that Mark's gospel is based on the eyewitness testimony principally of one person called Peter? Well, firstly, Papias said that John said so, so we have an apostolic uh, tradition. Secondly, there is a close relationship between Mark and Peter that would make this possible. Thirdly, we have that Mark tells us, following a convention from the period, using an inclusio, that it is from Peter. And then finally, and I think this is a very strong argument, it's what I call frequency and viviosity. Frequency and viviosity. Another compelling argument for this material coming from Peter is that, Mar, that, is that Peter is mentioned proportionally more in Mark's gospel than any other gospel. More in Mark's gospel proportionally than any other gospel. And in addition to that frequency, the story is so vivid. With details about Jesus and about Peter himself that is so human and action-packed. Think about Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel honestly lays out Peter's, Peter's weaknesses. It actually intends to omit praiseworthy things about Peter that appear in Matthew and Luke. If you look at how Peter appears in Matthew and Luke, there's these kind of praiseworthy comments that are associated with Peter. But in Mark's gospel, everything's laid bare. This is who I am, and this is what you're going to write down, and this is the story, and this is what it was really like. These other men may have admired Peter, but Peter saw himself for who he was. Peter is shown in Mark's gospel as being 
impetuous, self-confident, outspoken, undiscerning, fearful. The honesty in Mark's gospel is so undeniable, the ring of truth so strong, it's almost deafening to us. And then there's the embarrassing details that paint this vivid picture of a real human being being exposed to extraordinary circumstances. A real human being. Extraordinary circumstances. Surely the most gripping part of the story and the most heartbreaking, if you've ever spent just 15 minutes sitting alone and reading this portion of text, you cannot help but be torn in your own heart and emotionally exposed. It's the denial of Jesus. The denial, as it appears in Mark's gospel, is brutal and heartbreaking in its honesty. So brutal. I love what Borkham has to say about this. He said, readers share Peter's anguished remembering and grief. They also recognize the potentially transforming nature of his self-recognition as a culpable and abject failure at that very moment in time. Wow. Mark's gospel presenting the testimony of the disciple Peter. The disciple Peter. What have we learned over these last three weeks? Well, that Jesus existed as a historical person. And what we can know about him does not come from stories handed down over a long time, separated from the witnesses who first told them. In fact, it seems much more likely that the claims of the life of Jesus as reported in the Gospels are mostly grounded in eyewitness accounts either given to the writers by the witnesses themselves or transmitted to them via intermediaries. And who was the key witness for Mark's amazing Gospel? Well, it was Peter. His memories of Jesus survive today thanks to Mark's Gospel. This is why Peter was able to write in his second epistle, for we do not follow cleverly devised tales, and neither do you, when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And you and I get to partake in this when every time we read Mark's gospel, and you think to yourself, wouldn't it have been great to have been an eyewitness? It would have been. But you know what Jesus had to say to that kind of thinking? This is what he said to Thomas. He said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you're an eyewitness. You have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed yet have believed. Lord, we thank you for these eyewitness accounts. We thank you that you have caused them to be preserved. We thank you for this historical record, Lord, but it's more than just history. It's life to us. It's faith to us. It's eternity to us. You are a great and mighty Savior. We thank you for all that you've done for us, Jesus, in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. 
Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.